0: If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardener'sworldfair.com. See you there! At
1: the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
0: Is there anything you can't do?
1: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for Details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods.
0: Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. Brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Do you wish the children in your life had a better understanding of the natural world? Would you rather they were outside, in the fresh air and at one with nature, rather than addicted to television or a computer screen? And would you be surprised to hear that reading and storytelling might just hold the key to unlocking an appreciation for our planet? Hello, I'm Kevin, and today I'm chatting to celebrated children's writer Michael Morpurgo. I'm fascinated by how animals and the natural world have always been at the heart of Michael's storytelling and want to discover if our gardens can fuel children's creativity and play a part in connecting them with nature. I started by asking Michael how an encounter with a blackbird in his own garden inspired him to put pen to paper.
1: It was in the... I think, the march of the first lockdown. And I think like a lot of people, I was not shocked. I was just really sad by what had happened, I think. And I'd lost a friend to this disease. And it's quite difficult, as I think many of us now know, to live a life with sadness all around you and threat all around you. And um, being a writer, I have to say I was rather spoiled because writers sit at home and they write. And I was just sitting at home, but dealing with what was going on outside the window of my room where I write as well as inside. The inside I could cope with writing the stories, but the outside was hard. But anyway, what what I did was get into a routine. Um, I'm not a great routine person, but I knew that the routine was some sort of routine to get you through this is what was needed. So I set up this sort of thing that I would get out of bed very uh, reasonably early in the morning And I would go to the vegetable garden we have uh, around the cottage and um, I'd pick some kale. The reason for this is because I was ill a while back and uh, a good friend said to me, "Had also been ill with the same thing, uh, said, look, um, kale is the answer. Have a kale smoothie every morning and you'll live forever. So I thought this sounded pretty good. So I used to go out every morning and uh, have been since. Picking kale and making a kale smoothie for my wife and myself for breakfast, and I went out there one morning, and um, I was picking kale. And, and March, when well, it was two twenty, I think I can't remember. I'm not good on the years. And I heard this blackbird singing to me from a tree. I'd heard a, I'd heard him before, uh, never taken much notice. But there's a strange thing that happened. I think during this pandemic is that because of the silence all around and because maybe of the sadness in our hearts, we were paying much more attention to the world about us, the world of nature. And I looked up and there was this blackbird, happy as you like, singing from his branch. And uh, I don't know, I have no idea why at all, but I whistled back. I whistled back exactly the same tune, so he would have whistled. And so I went. And this went back and forth and back and forth for some time. And I thought, well, I'll try something else. So I went. And what came back was. And I just found we were having this conversation. And it went on and on. I didn't think it was silly. I thought it was, it moved me, it touched me, that I was having a connection of some sorts with this blackbird singing his song. Um and I thought, well, yeah, it's okay. I went into my thing. And I came out there the next day, and the blackbird was waiting for me. And um, he started singing again. He started it, not me. And um, so I sang back again and imitated, and then we changed our tune. And uh, in the end, I knew there was something special about this. This was a a relationship. I know it sounds silly, but it wasn't, and it isn't. Um, And I thought, well, this song means something. And since I found it very consoling as a a way of communication. Maybe animals are doing this all over the world. Maybe this blackbird song is being conveyed exactly the same way to the sheep in the fields, the cows in the fields, to heron down by the river, to the salmon in the river, um, and to the river itself, to the trees. Uh, And of course, it confirmed to me what I think I've always known, but we are more and more aware of, is that we're all of one universe. We're all linked to it. Um, we have exploited it and damaged it and done terrible things to it over hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and we have lost contact with it. And I was re finding contact in the deepest possible way. And I've lived in the countryside here in Devon all my life, so I'm familiar with it. But that was part of the problem, because familiarity means you're not paying any attention. And I had, and the story, then I just, I suppose a week or so later, I thought, hang on, I've got to, I've got to tell this tale, I've got to tell this tale. So I sat down and very quickly wrote this more as a poem than a piece of prose. And then I went out, and I did, I went out and, uh, the next day, and I read it to my blackbird. <laughs> and uh, I got a good review, because he sang from his perch, and I thought, well, that's all right, then. No, seriously, it was one of those things that it was absolutely clearly this song that made me write that story, and I'm very glad of it. There was another thing to tell you, was that I'm very inspired um, by other people as well, and there's a wonderful writer called Catherine Rundell, who was putting a book together called The Book of Hope, and she asked me to write a story about hope in the pandemic, and I, in a way, had... I think I'd replied, but said, I'll do my best. And then this blackbird thing happened. So it was one suggestion, then another suggestion. Anyway, that's the story. Oh, it's wonderful.
0: I enjoyed just listening to it. Great. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sensing there was a real personal connection with that blackbird. I, I, I don't think it's silly at all. And I, um, I, I wonder, is it important for children to form these sorts of connections with wild creatures?
1: I think, I mean, I don't know how much you know about but what, what we've done, but I've been working on this charity for the last 50 years called Farms for City Children. And we have kids from primary schools from all over the country, mostly urban places and cities. And they come down, they're here at the moment. We just a lot arrived yesterday. And um, they live on the farm, they work on the farm, but of course they live in nature. They're out there in their wellies, connected with it, connected with the land, working with the land. They're planting things. They're gathering things. Um, They're they're close to the animals. They are, if you like, reforming a connection to the world about them. Um, I grew up in in Essex uh, near a place called Bradwell. And when I was a very small boy, I would take my bike and ride down the road past Bradwell Church and out to this wonderful chapel called St. Peter's, dump my bike against the wall of St. Peter's and go walkies on the seawall And I'd see hares, and I'd see all the seabirds, and I'd see the great brown, soupy North Sea rolling in. And it was my place. I felt I belonged in this place. And similarly, my wife came down to Devon, in fact, the village where I now live. And she had the same childhood experience, and it changed her life. And we were both teachers, and we both decided that what children needed more than anything else in the world besides the love of parents was a connection to the world about them, was to feel part of it, that it belonged to them and they belonged to it. And that's what we've been trying to do. And I don't know, about 100,000 kids have now come down to the three farms we now have. Um, And I'm very pleased to have done it, but it's put me in a very, very privileged position of being able to observe children and nature and children and animals close together and to see the effect of the one upon the other. Um, So I think that's probably the answer to your question as to why... Uh, it matters to me,
0: I mean, coming back to to gardens we, we we're gardeners' world uh, magazine, and it strikes me that our gardens that, those little patches of green that are outside our our back doors, however big or small, are actually a, a gateway to the entire natural world. And you know I, I wondered what your thoughts are on what children can learn from just what's outside their back door in that little patch of green
1: it's what they can learn from really coming down here as well it's all part of the same thing it's a uh, it's it's wonderful for them to be able to see the seasons touch the earth touch the plants the trees i'm just writing a whole series of poems about trees at the moment and and and, and trying to comprehend um, how a tree and all the life of the wildlife that goes on around it and then if you own if you have i don't know a mum or a dad or an auntie or anyone who likes planting? Who likes flowers? It, it's the only way I think a child picks up on these things is through a grown-up who passes on her or his love of that connection. I have. I'm lucky enough to have a wife whose passion in life is not me. It's, it's gardening, and um. Uh, I, and in a way, I'm not joking. I feel that it is such a such a profound connection that she has with it. And she got in all weathers. She doesn't mind how much it hurts her back. She just loves it. She's now coming up to 80. And I think it's the place she most loves in all the world. And I think that is so important. And that, in a way, is what we have to inculcate in our children, that connection to the land, that it's so much part of who they are. It's not just for people who have lovely gardens, who live on farms. It's for everyone. It's everyone's right. And it's everyone's responsibility to look after it. But people aren't going to look after it unless they develop, as my wife has done and I have done more latterly, um, a deep caring feeling towards the countryside and plants. I think Attenborough has said it. Why should we care for the land about us and for nature if we don't care about it? And the care, whether it's literature or whether it's nature, is massively passed on from generation to generation to generation. And that's what our responsibility is, and our joy as well
0: I mean I'm very much picking up on you know i mean you mentioned it earlier as well the, the damage that we've we've done to our planet um and and um the, the the position we're in now is very much in the in the media in the in the news that we should be uh, addressing the the climate crisis extremely seriously and of course of course we should um. I mean, why, why do you think it's important to have children engaged with this, this fight and this crisis? And I guess, can uh, literature and, and storytelling do anything to, to help them along the way?
1: Most well, certainly it can, yes. It is, it is through books, I think, we come to both knowledge and understanding. Um, to me, they are the greatest pathway to those two things in our lives. And I, I sort of feel that unless unless that happens and happens quite early, then they might miss out on it, but they'll miss out on the literature and they'll miss out what the caring is all about as well. I think David Attenborough said this, and I think it's important to remember it, that, that it is no good forcing this. You can't force caring. It's got to happen because someone loves something. So from my way of thinking, if you have a garden outside. Or, or an allotment, uh, and you see someone tending that allotment, and you can see the care they're putting into it, I think it it's that that passes on. It's the caring. And when the children come down to the farm here, I see it in the last, what is it, 50 years. I see them out there, and you see, um, for the first time, looking across to Dartmoor, and at a mist rising in the valley, and you see the amazement at the beauty of it. And this is their earth. And they care about it. And that can start stuff. And when it comes to children, I think it's the children who are going to lead this. And It's, it's not just a wonderful Greta. It's the, it is it is children all, all over who have had this early experience of how wonderful the countryside and how important is. is. They're the ones, actually, who are going to be militant about it. I hope they're going to be militant in time. And the great thing they've got to get over with is this... This, this sort of resistance this habit we have of using everything you know we we just think that it's ours to use um and we're not we're not away from that yet we've got a such a long way to go but neborough might the care has to be there in the first place it's no good just telling them this is what you should do it's the right thing to do it's if it's theirs, they should have the opportunity to care about it. And once they realize, hang on, this is my world, it's not just the world of farmers or the world of people who have lovely gardens, it's my world, and then they'll think, hang on, this is going to matter to me, it's going to matter to my children. And, and I mean, children are really, to me, they're leading the way at the moment. I see time and time again the things that they're doing in schools with their teachers, and a lot of the enthusiasm is coming from, from the children.
0: It's interesting to hear you say, oh, this is my world, and for them to really feel invested in it. And I guess it's um, creating an awareness that the planet has a full web of life. I know I was talking about what's just outside the back door, but I guess it's, it's uh, fostering and nurturing and understanding this feeling and understanding of how everything is connected.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you think of uh, what we are living through, we're living through many crises at the moment, but the notion of these issues being separate is absurd. We have, what is it, 60, 100 million refugees in the world at the moment. Uh, well, this is connected to how we've treated the world. We are There's desert, desertification happening everywhere. There, there are uh, excesses of weather patterns which are happening. Global warming has its effect wherever, wherever we look. And um, it is absolutely connected to the migrant crisis, and it's going to go on being connected. Um, this is not a separate thing, N- nor are the politics of war. That's all connected to it. It's this notion that somehow uh, we, we solve things through bullets and shells and domination. It's sort of antique stuff, but yet we go on doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. So if you put the we've put war together with climate change, um, you you know that the problems are interwoven and. Uh, they have got to be sorted out. Otherwise, mankind will not only destroy uh, the living Earth, but our chances of continuing to live on this planet. It's, it it is is self-interest as much as everything else. And it's it's so obvious, but the trouble is it's long-term and it doesn't seem like self-interest. So what do you do? You get in your diesel car again. And it doesn't matter how big it is. And you fly in an airplane to do this, that, and the other. Well, it's habit. And I'm as guilty as anyone else. I think all my life growing up, I, like a lot of people, took advantage of what it seemed to be a good idea. You get in the car and you can go, you know, we needed cars. and It doesn't matter how fast you go. You just didn't think about that. You just did it. And if you want to go on a holiday, then you've got a plane to go there. And then when we eat, we eat too much. We don't eat the right stuff. And everything, everything has, has an effect. And it's it really, I think, only in the last, I mean, there were books. You know, There's a wonderful book called This Generous Earth, uh, which was written years and years ago and the Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, written years ago in the 50s and 60s. Th- these were the prophets, the people who were saying, hang on. You have to look after the planet or you're going to kill it. Well, people thought they were wacky. I mean, Prince of Wales for years and years and years was mocked um, for putting his arms around a tree and, uh, and declaring his close connection to the world about it. Well, he'd been proved right, you know. And, and these these were the early prophets, and Richard Attenborough, has, uh, not Richard, David Attenborough has been doing this all his life. He, he's saying, look, 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 have a look. Um, and Jacques Cousteur was another one, wasn't he? Only through Jacques Cousteau that we discovered there was a world, um, the sea was not there just to swim in, you know? The stuff happened down there. And But we've known now for long enough, there are no more excuses now for my generation who've done, I have to say, a massive amount of the damage. Um, I'm sorry I talk too much, but I feel quite strongly about <laughs>
0: Not it. at all, not at all. I mean, it's... Uh... You do feel strongly about it, and quite rightly, because it's it's a, a strong
1: issue. It, <laughs> you is know, strong it really issue. is. Yeah. And, and each of us, I think, each of us has to do what we can to address it. And my way is through stories and through talking about it, I suppose, and through um, living on the farm as I do, and in the way that I do, in terms of passing on what I feel is the most important lessons to children. But everyone is doing their little bit. Who cares about it? It's just that we got to do more. So let's come
0: back to stories, actually, and. Um, and talk about a song of gladness, which is is the book that resulted in the wonderful conversation with the with the Um Now it uh, it sort of it starts in a place of sadness and and fear, um, but actually the natural world acts as a tonic to to that sadness and fear as the story progresses. And I just wondered for you uh, personally, and I guess for others, how nature, wildlife, your garden, even boosts your mood it makes you feel better makes you feel less sad and afraid
1: it does and many things there's many parts of it really i mean i've lived in the same place for 50 years um and i know the history of this place um i know who planted the trees i know who made the hedges uh there are many people old people now in our graveyard who's looked after their gardens and their farms uh and they've tended the earth They've they've gardened the earth as well as they possibly could, so I'm connected to it through through, through familiarity, and I take great pleasure in being part of that familiarity. Now, um, I think Thomas Hardy called it the old association. Um, it, it it it's knowing that th- that the landscape we lived in is yes, it's man cultivated, man-made, but what we're actually doing, of course, is to some extent manipulating nature. And it has to be done either not at all, in which case we wild everything, which isn't possible because we have to feed ourselves. But it, if you're going to accept that we have to feed ourselves, which I think we all do, it has to be done with great sensitivity. And the more, the longer we live, the more we know that that, that, that is, uh, it, it's difficult. It's a it's a balance. Um, but yeah, that's the joy I get out of it, really. So if I go out into the countryside for my walk, which I do every day when I'm not doing a Zoom, um, I, I walk the same land. I have a, a, a three-mile walk, which takes me out across the sheep field, um, down through uh, a bluebell wood when there are bluebells there. And I'm looking all the time. I'm on the alert. What am I looking for? I'm looking for... Deer, the sort of white bobbing tails of a deer springing away across the stream. And I always stop by the quite close to the badger sets, which are there to see if I can spy one, which I do sometimes at dusk or in the morning, but by and large in the middle of the day, not. And then I get down to the river, and what am I looking for? So I don't know, look from the ducks, tell me they always come off and they shout at you. Um, but I am looking for a heron, you know, and I am looking sometimes for a kingfisher, and sometimes I see this, and sometimes you'll see otter tracks. And the joy that immersion in nature gives me is just huge, absolutely huge. But it is through familiarity. I know where the otter comes, uh, and I and I look for the tracks there, and I'm desperate all the time to see an otter, but he knows I'm desperate, so he won't show himself, you know, it's that sort of thing. Uh, and then there's the trees. So at certain times a year I'm walking in shade, um, and uh, I'm walking in heat, and the next, you know, season i in mean, roaring winds and swirling leaves and and then in the autumn i'm i love the business of sort of stomping through soggy leaves and puddles and it makes me feel good it makes me feel that i'm this this is what i am i'm this creature and i'm walking through leaves and it's very present and actually it banishes all thoughts of what is going wrong in the world I don't know why it is the immediacy of it. You know, you are part of, you're making this noise in the squishy leaves. And then a crows will lift off and they'll shout at you. And I know they're swearing at me and I don't care. You know, it's um, magpies and there are lots of birds. I'm not necessarily very keen on what they do, but they're unbelievably beautiful. Every bird that you ever see is beautiful. And every bird is a surprise, um, so we have we feed birds in our garden uh, a lot a lot like a lot of people do and to sit there at my breakfast as i very often do in my nightshirt believe it or not and i look out and what am i looking at a wonderful sort of um, place where the woodpecker comes down and sits there and looks at me and says i've come you know it's my place and i'm feeding and then you see this wonderful thing happening with this and i love watching it and the next thing a little jenny reynold come along and you, you simply haven't any idea how they survive they're so small and they're so delicate and uh their nests their nests, are all part, they're sort of part of who they are well all that gives me joy uh, there's nothing even if i found a wren that is dead it doesn't bother me in terms of sadness because i know that's part of nature um and uh i it when i bury it which i do um my wife is very good at something actually She's, um, what happens a fair bit with us is that we have quite a big window on one side and birds fly into them sometimes. And um, I mean, the number of times she sits there in her 92 outside, holding a, a wren or a wagtail or whatever in her hands and warming it and warming it. And she'll sit there sometimes for up to an hour. And I don't you know, I'd say, it's no point, it's no point. She sits there and sits there. And honestly, eight times out of 10, that bird revives. And there again is this wonderful connection. You can do something, you know.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I think I'm guessing that that connection was even more important during the pandemic. Um, and I imagine it, it went a long way to, to help things a bit.
1: I think so. I think one of the great problems was that so many people were cut off from it. Um, if you live in inner in cities and um, you're living in a tower block, yes, you'll see birds flying past the window but it's they didn't have the opportunity these children is why so there was so much unhappiness i think in 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 some families and it's this you know, they were imprisoned effectively you know and to imprison children and to imprison people is a, a cruel thing to do to have to do um and it's bound to turn us it's bound to make us ill in all either physically or mentally and the wonderful thing is that when people came out, and they did come out into their parks and their gardens, you could see this real pleasure. Oh, yeah, this is, this is the life. Well, before, maybe a lot of people didn't think it. They thought, well, yeah, parks are park. what's your problem? Um, actually, no, it's more than that. Um, it's a place where people can meet and they can play and they can uh, watch the seasons come and go and be connected to it. And that brings people a lot of energy, I think, uh, and and a lot of the joie de vie, the joy of of living. Um, And it's this whole business of how the sadness has affected us in terms of our mental health is so important to recognize, I think, because we are going to be dealing with it in a way it's like long COVID. I think it's going to go on for some time, and at least part of the resolution of it is, I'm not saying entirely, but part of it, sort of antidote, if you like, is to reconnect with the world around you, that is not so that we don't go back to that rush and push uh, of a society that were where we were before. I mean, I think it stretches this, this caring for the world about you more. I think we care about the people more, too. Um, I mean the amount of caring that's gone on in my little community, I think it was always quite a small community that cared for its old people. Um, but I know that within, I know, two weeks of shutdown, our nearest neighbor came to us and said, we've identified you as being the oldest people in the lane, which didn't fill us with much joy. Um, they said, look, we're going to, we want to shop. We don't want you going out. Um, so I will bring you anything you like. And they're still doing it. Two and a half years on, they're still doing it. Well, I think they were good, kind people anyway. I'm not sure I realized that this was there in so many people, quite deeply hidden. And I took notice much more of everyone who came to the door. I mean, everyone who came to the door mattered. When the postie came, I never let the postie come without actually a good long chat through the window or through. um, This is a person. It wasn't just a post person. And the people who delivered your stuff, and they wanted a chat. They were also feeling it, and there was this need for relationships, whether it was with each other or with nature. Which, um, yes, the pandemic has taught us a lot. I just hope we don't go away and forget it and go back to our old idiot ways.
0: I, I completely agree with you. I mean, certainly myself, um, it's been life changing in in many ways and many positive ways, actually, as well as as well as negative ones. So, um, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I'd like to. um, I'm just thinking. I'd like to come back to your kale smoothies, if I, if I, if I can. Um, And you know, um, it's one thing. It's
1: one thing. Zoom can't do is for me to hand you one of my kale smoothies, (laughs) so that you'll see the unbelievable quality of them. Which, I mean, I really have taken a lot of care and pride over these last whatever it is two and a half years of providing this to myself and my wife. And I can honestly say it's it's been a wonderful beginning to every day i mean i know it's good for me but it's more than that it's again a connection to my vegetable garden every day not just sometimes but i'm out there if it's not if the kale's running out we have the spinach instead and we do have some apples off the tree and so constantly constantly the vegetable garden the vegetable garden has become much much more important to us
0: I mean it's it's wonderful I I completely understand it's brilliant there's no, nothing beats the satisfaction of having something on your plate and, and eating it knowing that you've grown it yourself you know where it's come from you know the soil that it's that it's been growing in and and then everything that's gone into that I mean do you feel I mean it the 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 children of of this country could do with a better understanding of where food comes from
1: Absolutely, and it is, of course, part of what we've been doing down here on the farm for the last fifty years. Um, they have to know where their food comes from; it, it, it is their right, uh, and and it's important that they understand it so they can make choices in their life about what they eat and what they don't eat. Um, it's good for them to meet farmers, the people who actually go out there and work and make the food in in the first place, and then to be close to the animals. I think it's it is a problem because up until now, for most children. Where does food come from? Well, a stupid question. It comes from the supermarket. Where do potatoes come from? The supermarket. You know, it's that problem. And I know when, for instance, we're digging potatoes here on the farm, which we do when the season comes, um, they're absolutely amazed to see mud and dirt on the potatoes. Potatoes aren't like this, you know? And... I remember some of the kids, because I, we do a lot of sorting of the potatoes, and they will um, hold up a potato. and say, sir, well, sir, is this one bad? It's got mud on it. I said, no, it's not, ma- it's, it's not bad, it's muddy. You just sort of brush it off a bit, and it'll be fine, it'll be fine, 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 fine. But they're just so used to everything that's almost been pasteurized for them. You know, the, their carrots, their peas come out of packets and whatever, or tins or whatever. And this, this gives them a sense of, yeah, it grows in the earth. And when you see the milk coming out of a cow, it's the same thing. this is We can talk and discuss and um, with them uh, how careful we've got to be um, not having too many cows and not um, over-farming. But this is where your milk comes from. And, um, you know, you can have oat milk if you wish, or, or you can have almond milk. But if you want cow's milk, they've got to have a calf first. And this calf could be male or it could be female. If it's female, um, yes, it will go on living and it will have another life uh, as a milking cow. But a male calf, you you tell them that they probably have pretty short lives um, because they're not all going to be kept for beef. So they'll go for veal. What's veal? So you tell them what veal is. And they must know so they can make decisions about things themselves. And I think that's what it is. It's, It's coming to terms um, with, with what they eat is so important. It is not just bought in a shop. It's created by the earth and by the people who work on the land.
0: I mean, they're, when, they, when they're visiting um, the farm, they're obviously learning a lot about, about farming, about nature, about food, about wildlife. But uh, do you get a sense that the children learn something about themselves as well when they're with you?
1: I think, if I'm honest, that's the most important thing because they learn to work together. I mean, they're in a a group of people and they're out there and they really do work. They don't just, they haven't got a clipboard. They're not just filling it in and say, there's so many eggs, there's so many sheep. They're out there uh, and they're working alongside farmers and they're carrying sacks. I saw some yesterday evening. I went down to say hello to a new group of children and there were 12 of them with the sacks over their shoulders and they were off to feed the sheep in the evening, the last feed. And these are the ones that are going to be lambing quite soon. But they're doing the work. And and they're not just sort of sitting there and watching someone else doing it. They're doing it. And that makes them feel good. And if they clean out a chicken shed or they clean out a pig shed, they've done it. They can stand back and they look and say, we did that, I did that. And for an awful lot of children, that's really important because the most wonderful thing about education, apart from the passing on of knowledge and understanding along with it, is this gaining a sense of self-worth. I can do things. I'm all right, you know? I mean I was very lucky I went to a very good school particularly my secondary school and everyone really who left that school not everyone that would be wrong most people including me felt that we could do anything in this world you know we've been given super confidence um by teachers who um yes we had to work hard but we were rewarded if you like by being able to sing in a great choir by being able to make plays by being able to write what we felt all that really mattered and you felt good about yourself finishing it and i think so many children haven't got that to start their lives this business of yeah i'm okay i'm okay yeah i can do stuff i can contribute it's this business of feeling they can make a difference and if a child can leave school thinking they made a difference and that began i know it sounds silly but that can begin on a farm by cleaning out a shed with 12 other kids um, and then spreading the straw inside and then getting behind the calves and driving the calves in again and seeing the calves springing around in the fresh straw and looking at it and saying, yeah, we did that. I think that's really important. Achievement is very, very important and doesn't matter what the achievement is. It's it's just important for them to feel good about themselves and they can do stuff.
0: And, you know, is a week enough? Can a week do that? I mean, I was looking at the birthday duck, the you yes. know, the story about Sam who comes and visits, who comes and visits the farm. And at the beginning of the story, he's very worried about a week away from home and a week away from the city. And right at the end of the tale, he he declares that it's the best week of his life that he's had at the farm. And can a week make a difference, a difference long enough to have a lasting impact?
1: Absolutely. If I was to put, throw the question back to you gently so that you can catch it and say, do you think one good book can make a difference to a child's life, you'd say yes.
0: I would say yes, and a one good book certainly made a difference to my life in the time I've been alive, so yes, I can relate to that.
1: I think what happens is that any experience that is intense enough and positive enough, um, yes, you don't forget. You know, it stays with you and stays with you and stays with you. I mean, I know this anyway, but I know it particularly because... We've been doing this project now for close on 50 years. And I meet them. This is what's lovely about being a writer with your name on a book. You go to a festival so that people know who you are. And um, so I sit down, I'm signing books sometimes, and uh, I look up, and there's this man standing there, he's six foot four, and he's got three children. And he says, do you remember me? So I say, no. And I know what he's going to say, roughly. He said, you made me muck out a calf shed when I was seven years old. And it was the smelliest thing I ever had to do in my life. But it was also one of the best. And then he says to the children, one day you should go to Mr. Morpurgo's farm because you can do this and you can do that. The truth is, they know it's the most extraordinary week because it's so different from the rest of the life that they were living. And you know what happens when you... When in your school, you have a great teacher, and that great teacher, you don't have to see them every day. It doesn't have to be day in, day out. But they can affect you by what they read, by what they do with you, and uh, you just don't forget them. And I I think those moments, those people can make a difference. Huge difference.
0: It leads us nicely to to teachers and to school, actually. And, um, I mean, I, I personally would love to see more of the natural world bought into our, our learning at school. I know, uh, you know, curriculums have... Curriculums, excuse me, have changed uh, a little bit over over recent years to...
1: Not nearly bring,
0: enough. ...bring a slightly broader... <laughs> a slightly broader uh, range of topics and, and learning approaches. But, I mean, I'm guessing just by your reaction there, you would like to see a lot more about the natural world in, in our schools.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we know the great... Um, is the, the, I suppose it is the, the greatest difficulty we have to face in this world at the moment is climate change. There's no question about that at all. And it's not the school curriculum at all. It's nothing, nothing to do with it. It, it. You can add it on, just like you, you can add on um, a good school library, but it's not there. It's not at the heart of what we do and what we can get children to experience. Now, as far as I'm concerned, every single child in this country should have at least a week away in the countryside or away from their, their their environment at home. So country people can go to the city. It doesn't matter. It's this business of going away and seeing another world and feeling that this world is yours. And at least a week of your school life should be doing that. Every single child should be able to go to the theatre twice a year, free, as they do in some parts of Scandinavia, It's this kind of breadth of education we have to offer children. It mustn't just be a little extra, a little on the side, a little... No, this is central to their growing. Um, Yes, of course, the, the mathematics and the literature, all that is critical to how they're going to be in their lives. But what touches their heart and their soul... Is equally important. We have to look after the mind as well as the body, as well as the career, the whole child, in other words. And uh, I'm strongly of the view um, that until we have, uh, until it's regular in this country for a child to have this opportunity to go away for a week of every year, to go to the theatre a couple of times a year, so that And a museum a couple of times a year. All of this. So it broadens the whole thing out. And teachers be given the opportunity not to raise money to do it, but for it to be the right of every child. I mean, we are the country of Shakespeare, you know? And the notion that some children never get to the theatre at all is awful. To me, dreadful. And then we also know that we live in one of the most beautiful countries in the world. It is the greatest educational resource that is unused or not enough used. It's out there waiting for children. Um, And it's great to have youth hostels and it's great to go camping. And all these things are really, really important for a teacher in a school to be given responsibility, really, for getting the kids out there. They call it a fresh air program in the U.S., and I don't think it's a bad word for it. It's getting it, getting out there and realizing this world is there for you. I mean, my own granddaughter quite recently went on um, one of these 10 tours hikes across Dartmoor with her school. Loving it, absolutely loving, coming back for more and more and more and more, Um, and the rest of the time, what's, what's she doing? What are all her friends doing? They're in the classroom, and they're working away, and that's fine. Got to be done, but the other is just as important. Let's bring it back to storytelling, if we can.
0: I have fascinated have enjoyed, loved your, your, your books, your stories, all with nature and animals right at their heart. Um, how can any young, you know, aspiring writers or teachers, parents, whatever, use nature, gardens and green spaces uh, for storytelling inspiration?
1: Well, I think it comes from both. Um, the story is the story in itself. So you, what should happen in every school, as we all know, but it doesn't happen, is that there should be a story time between three and a half past in the primary school for every single child in the country. Why? Because there is a moment when we need for our brains to be at rest, for our imagination to wander, uh, and that is critical, It's critical because you want to inculcate, of course, a love of stories, a love of reading, because that's going to help them not just in their education but in their lives. But what you introduce them to within the stories is just important. So within the stories, if in fact they read stories about other countries, other peoples, other religions, their knowledge and understanding of the world that they are, after all, going to be part of as an adult is widened is broadened, is deepened. And I feel that's that's critically important. There's something else which is also important, is that through that, they learn and they are stimulated. Their own creativity is stimulated and enables them to think, well, I can, I can write stories. I can do that myself. And that is so, so important because everyone has a story to tell, that's for sure. They have to have the confidence to sit down and do it. Uh, it, it's not something you need to put a red line through spellings and a red line through this and it's long enough and it's not short enough. It's not that kind of thing. It's telling the tale. It's writing the poem, listening to the words and feeling part of the story you're telling. That When you tell a story, you tell it because it matters to you, not because it's part of a test, because it's expressing yourself. It, it's, it's saying to the world, this is what I think. This is what I see. And no child sees the world the same, and they've got to have the confidence to express that. So all of this, I think, can come from reading um, hugely. Um, So that's what I'd say about that.
0: We're sadly out of time. I've found this completely fascinating, Michael. Thank you. I I really have. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Um, I'm very inspired to give a kale smoothie a go, I must be honest.
1: Do so and let me know.
0: (laughs) Sounds sounds a marvellous idea. And um, you know, long may long may the, the the gardening continue. Um sounds like your your wife has got it all under control very nicely. So
1: Well, she's she's certainly got me under control. I don't know about the garden, but I'm under control.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, good stuff. Um, thank you. I I really do uh, mean that. I, I really enjoyed our chat and I'm quite certain that many people out there listening to this are gonna be hugely inspired and, and compelled to uh, get just that little bit closer to, to nature and the natural world. So
1: thank you. One well, one more thing I'd just like to add, and that is without the right teachers, none of what we've said can matter. And uh, we have out there tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of extraordinary people who devote their lives to these children and are longing for this kind of experience to be available uh, to everyone Um, and I can't commend them if they come here for an awful lot of stick well I was a teacher for 10 years myself at the coalface so I know both how hard it is what a challenge it is and what a joy it is and um, anyway and I know your wife's a teacher so you give her my best and tell her courage all will be well
0: thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast so if you've enjoyed this episode please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app and we'll see you next time